stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and I'm just tickled to death that we have a uh, guest today, Robert Alt, the head of the Buckeye Institute, which is a nonprofit that litigates libertary liberty interests in Ohio, as the name might uh, might uh, 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 connote to many of you out there. Welcome. I'm very glad to be here. All right, and we're going to talk because you are you. This particular case is is on our turf here in D.C. Uh, the the big board, and uh, that this is a case that Buckeye brought, I think, first in the administrative agency. Tell, tell us what happened. So, so I guess my one correction: we're based in Ohio, but we litigate all over the place, including in in your fair city. So, what happened in this particular case? Uh, Eric Flannery is a Navy veteran. He owns a popular burger joint uh, and bar on Capitol Hill, neighborhood bar on H Street. Uh, if you're in D.C., you should visit the big board. Um, and he, first of all, had been fighting to keep uh, his business alive during. The onerous round of regulatory shutdowns and various restrictions during the pandemic. Um, DC had, as you all know, some of the most uh, restrictive requirements. Uh, long shutdown period for him, followed by a period in which businesses were only able to operate at approximately 25%, which if any of you have actually worked in the restaurant and bar industry, that's almost impossible. So he he burnt through his life savings before we got to uh, the the regulation in question. So late December of 2021, the mayor announces that uh, about a month from then that, that the city was going to impose two new requirements. One was a requirement that all restaurants and bars were going to be required to uh, check vaccine uh, cards of anyone who sought to enter the establishment. And the second was a more onerous masking requirement. All patrons and uh, employees were going to be required to and, be masked. And Rob, where did she claim she got this power? Funny you should ask that, John. Uh, so, you know, let, she claimed that she got this based upon a D.C. Council emergency amendment. Um, you know, so let, let's unpack this for a minute for 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 the guests listening. Um, like so many jurisdictions, you had these claims of emergency power. If you actually take a look, look at the emergency power that the mayor has, she can issue emergency orders that last for 15 days. In order for her to enact uh, something beyond that, she has to re- rely upon authorization by the D.C. Council. The D.C. Council, any act that they pass— um, must actually be submitted to Congress for review. It's a, it's and, an, and I'll just I'll just interject here, which I, I know Rob knows, but maybe the listeners don't all know, is that DC is was for years and years and years run directly by Congress, correct. and then Congress passed a Home Rule bill which allowed the city to run its own affairs, 
And it is, it's always been contentious what they get to do, uh, particularly at one point they blew up their finances. Congress had to take it all back. And this is this is recent. This is while I've been here. So so uh, this home rule bill has always been contentious and it's a, it, it's uh, very sensitive to the local inhabitants of D.C. Let's put it that way. It, it certainly is. But it is, you know, the courts have interpreted this as not a mere formality. This is something that has teeth, and it has teeth because of the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the exclusive regulatory authority with regard to administering the district. They went ahead and delegated some of that authority in the Home Rule Act, but there's reserve power under Article 1, Section 8. So this this actually raises Home Rule Act questions. It raises uh, the reserve uh, authority of Congress. Anything has to, anything passed by the D.C. Council has to go before uh, before Congress. How they get around it? So there is an Emergency Act exception. Uh, however, uh, emergency acts are only permitted to last for ninety days, and so. What D.C. did, like so many other jurisdictions, think about our friends in Wisconsin, where the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned a similar uh, series of stacked emergency orders. They stacked these emergency orders one on top of each other for over two years. Um, you know, and they did so. Sometimes they just blatantly violated it. There was at least one, I think, if you look in the stacking, that was 120 days. So that didn't even meet the requirement of the uh, of the Emergency Act. But they did something, you know, just to sort of add insult to injury. There's another provision of D.C. law that states that during one of these stated emergencies, functionally the courthouse doors are closed. You can't bring any D.C. APA action for injuries that arise as a result of the emergency orders or acts. And so for the pendency of the entire emergency— Individuals like Eric Flannery and the big board or any other business that was harmed by these regulations could not actually bring an action in court. Wow. And so you eventually – you brought administrative action. Tell us what happened there. So so in that case uh, – well, first of all uh, – this followed on Eric Flannery's business was was shut. He issued a tweet uh, the day before the vaccine verification requirement went into effect. Uh, terribly incendiary. Uh, he he basically uh, he was pretty you know, hot. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, he basically stated English common carrier law. Uh, everyone is welcome. Uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And for that, the full force of the D.C. government came down upon him. Three separate agencies came in and pulled his licenses and closed him down. We first were able to actually negotiate to get him reopened, but uh, D.C. Health had issued a number of fines against him, so we filed an administrative appeal of those. And just in the last few weeks, the administrative law judge went ahead and ruled on those uh, on that appeal, first stating something which uh, you know I think is black-letter law correct— she didn't have the authority to rule on our constitutional claims. Uh, that's just not within her because purpose. Because that's not what they're allowed to do, exactly. right? They're just supposed to do, uh, you got this fine, is this fine, does it comport with the law? And that's pretty much all they get to do. Exactly. Uh, but the second thing she she noted is, gee, you know, they were kind of sloppy, uh, the regulators, in drafting this particular rule. They didn't state what the fine was supposed to be. So she went ahead and threw out all, all of the the new fines, that which, they had which is a win. It's not on the principle of the matter, but but they're doing this thing sloppily because they, I think, because they didn't really care. They want to shut everyone down, and they're going to move quickly and and assume uh, that their power is going to be uh, adhered to. Well, and and you know, let me just say this: this really was a case. You take a look. 
uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say they were seeking to make an example of this particular individual because he spoke out on Twitter. He was closed for 57 days. D.C. Health, if you actually have an egregious violation of D.C. Health regulations, the maximum period that they're allowed to shut you down is 30 days. He was closed down after D.C. rescinded the vaccine verification requirement. Uh, they still didn't allow him to reopen for an extended period of time. Uh, and then they were seeking these additional fines on top of it. I, I, you know, I, I think it's difficult to say that they weren't trying to make an example of him yeah, in this it, case. It does. And I did think the administrative law judge was uh, sympathetic to your arguments. Let's put it that way. So then doesn't end there because we still got these outstanding, outrageous executive orders that aren't constitutionally based. So what what have you done and what has the big board done and your client? What, what's going on? So once we were clear of the administrative proceeding, we went ahead and filed a federal lawsuit in the District for the District of Columbia, challenging the unlawfulness of the executive orders and the, uh, the D.C. acts that they were based upon, you know, looking at both violations of the Home Rule Act and the reserve authority under Congress. But additionally, we're raising a due process claim based upon the fact that D.C. had closed the courthouse during the pendency. So that's in the suit as well. That is as well. So um, that is this new. Where where does it stand? uh, This we just filed in in the past few weeks. So uh, a judge has been assigned, but nothing beyond that. We're before Judge Jackson, I believe. So. okay, And so. um, uh, So. You've, you've brought this case on their – what do you seek – like you say there's constitutional problems, right? And I think we've discussed them. Constitutional problems is these laws were not vetted by Congress and they should have been. Probably that the uh, emergency orders kept being stacked. That doesn't seem kosher to me. Is that part Cor- of it? Correct. I, well, you know, basically what I say is this case is about a little bit of money and a whole lot of principle. <laughs> so we were able to, get, to eliminate the latest round of fines. But in order for him to reopen, he had to pay – uh, he had to pay a fee in order to get his license reinstated. But that fee was predicated upon the fact that the that the shutdown orders were proper under the existing authorities right. in D.C. So essentially our argument is, look, uh, you, you've got turtles all the way down in terms of these stacking orders that are relying upon an unlawful uh, predicate. So at, at the end of the day – it was unlawful to charge him this fee because you didn't have the authority to begin with. And it really goes to the core of these things. I know that at this point, I mean, look, Joe Biden has told us the pandemic is over, so it must be over. But, um, you know, uh, listeners of this podcast, I'm sure, following what happened during the pandemic, realize we spend an awful lot of time talking about, you know, cases from 1905 involving smallpox vaccinations and what may seem like it's in the rearview window now could end up serving as the foundation for future regulatory actions. And so our belief in this case is, you know, there are larger principles at stake. We need to make sure that if, if in fact, as we argue, D.C. did not have the authority to, to engage in regulation in the way that they did, that they don't rely upon this as a precedent to do something similar in the future. Yeah, and obviously living here, it, they, uh, I traveled around the country and I was here in D.C. I mean, D.C., New York, San Fran, those places were extremely hard on the small businessman as far as trying to keep open a restaurant. So um, you've you filed in district court here, and uh, the the government is going to respond in a month or so. 
Presumably. Uh, so you, all right, we'll, we'll guess here. Do we think we're going to get a motion to dismiss or we think we're going to get an answer? Oh, I, you know, it, my my litigator's instincts say that we'll get a motion to dismiss. <laughs> but we could get something good out of that. You yes. really could get something good out of that because they, they at least then they put all their cards on the table and they say all these outrageous things we did can we can't be sued upon and it's all perfectly fine and just uh, give it your imprimatur. So I don't think that'll happen and maybe we'll have Rob back when uh, when the case has been resolved. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, John wanted to talk about another amicus brief that uh, NCLA filed uh, last week. Uh, And this one was in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And boy, we turned this one around quickly. Uh, This is in the case where the Eastern District of Missouri ruled against the six states, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina, who were trying to block the Biden administration's unlawful student loan debt cancellation plan. And uh, the uh, the case went up to the Sixth Circuit, the, or excuse me, the Eighth Circuit, uh, which is uh, exactly, actually based in St. Louis. Uh, and the, uh, the court issued a stay of the executive action while it considers the state's emergency request. And it was interesting that the stay of the executive action was issued without any name on it. There was no, it was just the court. Uh, acting, it didn't even say per curiam. I don't think it was just yeah, but an administrative stay. stay. Administrative it, stay, right? Not a not an injunction. So it means mainly we got to think about this. Yeah, we have you know we have we have to have time to get our arms around this, and uh, you know it doesn't uh, these these sorts of stays aren't in uh, my my class asked me. Uh, how long is this stay going to be in effect? They're all worried because I guess they want their student loans yeah, forgiven. I don't know, <laughs> and, but I said it. I, I feel like it's unlikely that it would be. Uh, in place past uh, November 14th. Uh, in other words, it may still be stayed at that point, but there would be something that would replace that administrative stay. Right. They give reasons and it would be a regular stay that's actually in the federal rules. Correct. I don't think administrative stays in the federal rules. Ah, interesting. Okay. Uh, it's just a thing that they're allowed to do from their from their inherent powers. Right. Okay. Well, I Let's just say that that scares me less than what uh, President Biden is trying to do with his inherent powers of forgiving a half a trillion dollars in uh, in debt, uh, which is. Uh, oh, he doesn't say it's his inherent powers. He says it's in the statute. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> that's even less plausible uh, uh, in, in my view. But but let me just talk about this uh, amicus brief uh, a little bit. Uh, one of the things that the, so the 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 states here have have really uh, focused on two different theories as to why uh, they have standing uh, in these uh, in these cases right so uh, the the main uh, uh, this the basis for standing that all of them assert is this idea uh, that this impacts uh, the tax revenue uh, for the states and so forth I think the concern there is somewhat similar John to the concern uh, from the Seventh Circuit where 
the the district judge in the Southern District of Indiana in the, the Pacific Legal Foundation case indicated that your harm comes from from the from the not from the program at the federal level, but from the state tax statute. And you want to if you want to solve that harm, then change your state tax law. Now, uh, I, I'm not sure I agree with that decision from the Southern District of Indiana, particularly because I don't see how PLF's client is supposed to be able to change the, the tax law. Uh, but as to these as to these states, I think the court might reasonably say, well, look, you, you guys are in charge of state tax law. You're the states. If you don't like the way that you don't like the revenue effects of this, then change your revenue laws. And uh, and so that might you know, that might uh, be what uh, what the Eighth Circuit would eventually rule. We'll see. Hopefully not. Hopefully they'll find that all these states uh, have standing. But even if it were to decide that there's another uh, basis uh, for standing here that uh, that Missouri has and. Uh, it's based on, and, and John, I don't know if you remember the name of it, but it's based on the, uh, uh, on the, uh, there's an agency in the, in the state of Missouri that, uh, uh Moira, I think it's called the, Moina or Moira, M-O-I-R-A or M-O-N-E, I've forgotten. Yeah. Well, it's in, in any event, it's, uh, uh, it's a, uh, an agency within the, uh, within the state of Missouri that has pretty direct oversight over uh, the administration of some of these uh, loans. And the fact that it has this uh, means that uh, uh, that the state has more than uh, the usual state's interest in, uh, in the program because they were making money off of that program uh, as, as well. And I'm, I'm pulling it up here, uh, the name of this, because uh, I, I think it's important to to get these things uh, uh, to get these things right. But uh, in any event, the the court, the district court, didn't like that theory uh, either. It's Mohila M O H M O H E L A, the Missouri go. Higher Education Loan Authority. And in the last fiscal year, Mohila earned eighty eight point nine million dollars for servicing five point two million uh, accounts. And that revenue is, well, among other things, allows Mohila uh, to fund uh, scholarships. And so, you know, the, the state of Missouri is saying, hey, wait a minute, we have a real interest in, that's being uh, infringed here. Even if one doesn't think that the, uh, that the standing uh, of the states on the tax piece is infringed, I don't see how you can get around this. I mean, this seems like very, very solid basis uh, for standing to me. What the what the district court said was, well, you don't you, the state don't have uh, essentially don't have standing to assert Mohila's interest in this litigation, which that doesn't that, that well, can't be right. Can here's it? the well, if Mohila is its own juridical um, outfit, if it can sue and be sued, I think the judge is going to say, well, why aren't they here? Why are you asserting it? I, I do. I do think it is a juridical I think it can sue and be sued. And so he's saying that you can't assert it because let's say you the bank that Mohila did something bad on your loan. Could you sue the state of Missouri? So I think that's what he's thinking. Uh, I see what you're saying that you'd have to you would have to sue Mohila, not not the state of state of Missouri. Right. And this cuts both but, ways. But it's but. a pass through. So it's a pass through to yeah. Missouri. The Missouri state benefits from it. So I think the standing issue should be the same. But I think that's what he was thinking. Well, and it seems like you could solve that pretty easily by just joining Mohila to to the litigation. Maybe that will happen ultimately. I don't know. Uh, but Missouri, Arkansas, and Nebraska also uh, pointed out that 
Uh, initially, the Department of Education told borrowers with privately held federal student loans that they could qualify for loan cancellation by consolidating their loans into the direct loan program run by the federal government. And millions of students took them up on that and, and consolidated loans to qualify uh, for uh, the discharge. And uh, Missouri, Arkansas, and Nebraska are all alleging that that consolidation uh, injured them financially uh, because uh, uh, Mohila used private loans to secure bonds and uh, and and earn interest payments uh, from both the loans and servicing fees. Arkansas has a student loan authority uh, that um, uh, and debtors there apparently consolidated about six million dollars of, of of private loans, and that reduced the revenues earned by the state for administering those loans. And similar similarly with Nebraska, uh, they they had uh, financial interests allegedly harmed by affecting its investments in these private and, these and that, private loans. that should totally be standing. Because if you have that, and the states have a reduced standing uh, uh, bar, I would say, historically. Historically, they do. I mean, certainly Massachusetts v. EPA uh, suggests that that's, uh, that that's the case. Uh, and as I say, they all uh, allege the, the reduced state tax revenues. But, I, you know, I think that, that there were lots, there's lots of merit here to the, the standing arguments uh, of the states. And if folks want to learn more about this, I would encourage you to check out an article at thefederalist.com by Margot Cleveland uh, from uh, October 24th. Uh, Courts are on Biden's side, question mark. One just one just froze his scheme to buy votes with student loan bailout. And this is uh, a take on what's happened here with uh, with the Eighth Circuit and so forth. Uh, that's worth uh, that's worth digging into if you're interested in this. Uh, but let me jump back, uh, John, to the uh, the amicus brief uh, that uh, uh, that. Uh, uh, that you filed uh, yes. for us uh, in in the Eighth Circuit, and that uh, Shang Li, our colleague Shang Li, was instrumental in in putting together, and has been at the forefront of of uh, of our the government uh, opposed us filing. Yes, yes, they yes they did. Uh, but um, uh, there's there's sort of three uh, arguments that we can run through real quick here. One is that the defendant's uh, interpretation uh, of the Heroes Act uh, violates the Constitution's vesting clause. One is that the defendant's interpretation of the HEROES Act violates the Constitution's appropriation clause. And one is that mass debt cancellation inflicts additional concrete and irreparable injury. And we've run through these substantive arguments uh, before. Folks can go back to the, the last episode. But, John, one of the things that, that, that you and Shang point out uh, in this uh, brief is that there's another basis for standing that the states uh, didn't uh, allege. And, and that's the same sort of basis of standing that that we argue for in in the case that we filed on behalf of the Cato Institute uh, in Kansas, which is that all of these states uh, have state employees who are eligible for participation in the in the in the uh, PSLF program. And therefore, it affects them as employers uh, if the Biden administration's loan forgiveness, unlawful loan forgiveness program uh, goes into uh, effect uh, do you think that that's a, a stronger theory of, of standing for the states or, or just as strong as just, the other it, theories it's that they just, have? It's just, well, let's put aside this juridical thing I brought up. Yeah. That is totally you, – you've forgiven – they're servicing the loans. You've forgiven the loans. It's, stand, it's classic standing, right? Sure. So, But this, this one is also classic standing because if you've injured the, uh, the ability of any organization to obtain and keep labor, it's a standing issue. Look, $1 in injury. That's how we were all taught. One, one acorn, I one, think, is yes, what 
that, that was for a contract. Oh, that was for a contract. For a contract. Okay. <laughs> but but one dollar in injury is enough injury okay. to do it. And so, uh, yeah, one peppercorn. It's peppercorns. Peppercorn. Peppercorn. Yeah. Okay. So one peppercorn holds up a contract and one dollar in injury keeps you in court. Yeah. Well, this is easily past that. I don't see why. And and I, I did. I, I think the judge was thinking why on on the, on, the, on the actual entity, I think, is what he was hung up on. Um, because the one thing I disagree with Margot Cleveland, I don't think this guy had in his mind, I want this outcome or that outcome. He has a view about standing. So we'll see what happens. But I think our standing argument dire- directly applies to them. And the court can can take any standing argument from anybody. It doesn't have to be what they argued. Right, which is unusual. Usually, uh, amici are, are confined to sort of buttressing the arguments already made by the parties. But when it comes to, to standing or subject jurisdiction, matter jurisdictional yeah, subject matter kinds, jurisdiction. Of, kinds of issues – uh, then, then that uh, that doesn't apply. Uh, so, hopefully, this amicus brief uh, will will be accepted uh, by the court, and uh, and the court will recognize that there is this additional ground uh, of standing. Maybe the court won't need to get there because it will find, uh, as I think that it well could and should, uh, that the states have plenty of basis uh, for standing, and the court really needs to reach the merits of this and and not get hung up on on standing here, which I think. At a minimum, the states have, uh, but I think they have it for the same reason that the Cato Institute does it as well. So uh, take a look at that. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Administrative Static. We will absolutely keep you up to speed on what's happening with these student loan lawsuits. 